Hi, this is Shauna, the CEO and founder of Fuel Talent. One of the things I have loved most in my 25-year recruiting career has always been the stories that people tell. Stories of leadership, career choices, company ideas, and team building. My inspiration for starting the What Fuels You podcast came from being curious about people's lives and wanting to help share their stories. What path brought them to this place? What decisions did they make that led to failures and successes? Who influenced those decisions and what lessons were learned along the way? I hope you enjoy the What Fuels You podcast. Today's guest on the What Fuels You podcast is Mia Lewin. Mia is originally from Finland and is a three-time founder with deep domain expertise in the design, e-commerce, and lifestyle industries. Always inspired by Scandinavian design, Mia founded Spruce Up in 2018 to provide a new, personalized way to shop for home furnishings and decor and spruce up any space in your home. In one year, they have already raised $4.5 million, and they are doubling down on AI powering every aspect of their product and operations. She is also a wife and a mother to three rambunctious, I'm assuming, little boys, and a shepherdor puppy. I, I want to hear about that. <laughs> um, welcome, Mia. Thank you for being on the podcast. So Thank fun. You, yeah, I'm glad to have you here. But you know, because I know that you listened to a podcast of mine before that we start with. Uh, rapid fire. You ready? All right. Okay. Let's do it. Since you're a uh, citizen of the world and have lived in many places and visited many places, which city do you prefer, Paris or London? Paris, for sure. <laughs> Modern or traditional? Modern. What is your favorite book? I have to say Alchemist was given by a good friend of mine about 20 years book. ago when I was living in Paris, and she gave it to me and told me that would change my life. And as a global citizen, it did. It explained my kind of world breath. Yeah. Um, I love that book. I also was given that by a friend uh-huh. and, and love that book. Um, I kind of forgot about it until you just said that. Yeah. Um, what is the best word to describe you as a leader? Driven. Driven. Super focused. Driven. (laughs) Push forward. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. Um, Are you an introvert or an extrovert? I'm actually on the chasm. It depends on the day. So I have the extrovert in me, but then I need a lot of time to bounce back and I need my me time, which is really hard with three boys and a dog and a full house. (laughs) Oh, oh, yeah. And a startup. And a startup. Yeah. Yeah, I forgot that part. Um, Who would you say, you probably might not even be able to answer this, but who would you say is your favorite furniture designer right now? Uh, I'm from Finland, so Eero Arnio is a legend in Finland. Um, he did, you know, the bold chair and the egg chair, et cetera. Um, and he's in his 80s, and he's so creative. So Yeah, it's I love incredible. the egg chair. Yes. Yeah. So tell me, so you were raised in Finland um, until what age, and how does being Finnish kind of define you? So I grew up in Finland and lived there until end of university. Um, and when I was in my early 20s, then I moved to Paris to study and then to London. And from London, I came to Stanford and then stayed on uh, in the U.S. for the last 15 years. Um, I think the way of living in Finland, it's all about equality, uh, equal opportunity, great education, great health care. Um, you get great quality of living. I think all of those values were instilled in me and still are. Mm-hmm. Um, are your parents still in Finland? Uh, all of my family is in Finland. My dad has passed away. I'm sorry to hear that. And how um, how did they feel about when you came to Stanford? Were they thinking that maybe that was just, oh, go to Stanford and then she'll come back to Europe and live somewhere? Well, this is maybe maybe explains the Scandinavian way of parenting. My mom was um, let her apply, and I was kind of foolish, and I only applied to Harvard and Stanford. <laughs> Well, and she it was seemed like, to she, serve you. And she said, she'll never get in. <laughs> I got in. Yeah. At which point I think she was crushed. She was did you get into Harvard also? Yes, I did. Oh, my goodness. And, and how did you choose Stanford? Um, because I was in entrepreneurship and venture capital and investment banking prior to that. So I was in this entrepreneur path. And all of the partners in my venture fund, uh, they went to, well, some of them went to Harvard, but most of them went to Stanford. And we were trying to build this Silicon Valley style investment yeah. fund back in the 2000s. And it was like, I have to go to Silicon Valley so I know what I'm talking about yeah. and get more operational experience so that I actually could be a good board member and a good investor. So that was kind of what you know, uh, paved the way uh, for my transition. Yeah. And so um, growing up in Finland, you said it's like, let me tell you more about the Scandinavian parenting style. How would you describe that? I really don't know. 
Um, I think I was brought up to always just work hard. Um, it was uh, a generation that had gone through the wars in the beginning uh, when Finland gained their independence. My grandparents left Karelia, leaving everything behind uh, when we were, you know, had the war against um, Russia and Soviet Union, had to start everything from scratch. So my mom grew up having nothing and they mm-hmm. came from very, um, you know, basic upbringing. I think my dad started school when he was eight or ten years old. Mm. Um, so it was a very different environment. And then Finland uh, came from that that poverty and very basic upbringing into this uh, wealth and health. Um, and there were the growth years during the 70s. And that's when they started building better education and making sure that all of the teachers had university education. And somehow that went from a country that was um, behind in development to leading everything mm-hmm. in development to then the rise of Nokia and all that. So it's been a pretty remarkable transformation as a country in 100 years. Yeah. And so what would you say kind of fueled you as a child? Because you've gone on to do a lot of incredible things um, that sound like it wasn't like you were spoon-fed these ideas from your parents. So who gave you these ideas? Did you have mentors or great teachers? I think it was all being self-starter. Um, partly it's my sister. She was five years older and she was very ambitious. Uh, but I was brought up to always believe in myself and always work really, really hard. And I was always very curious. So I would go in 100% whatever I was doing. So in the early days, it was about doing ballet or music or singing. And then I, when I was 10, I actually became punk. Mm. And it was about going against the normal, I need the to middle see class. <laughs> Bring out They're those really pictures. bad from the eighties. Did you have a different color hair? Um, it was it was blonde, but it was all mohawk, and oh, wow. uh, I would show up to school, and I was the best uh, student in the class, and I was a new teacher, and everybody would come around the corner to you know check on me and my best friend, and then I would go to the class, and the teacher would give me the evil eye, like who's this troublemaker? And then you're like, you, she would, how you like me now? I got straight A's. <laughs> exactly. And she would look at my. You had to bring your report cards back in the day, and she would look at the report card and not believe what she saw. Um, but that was kind of the rebel in me. So I went into this whole, like, I'm not doing any sports. I was all into the music. And then when I went to university, I actually decided to, I wanted to go to the best, uh, best sorry, high school in Finland. And there were two, uh, one was for the nerds and one was what was <laughs> called the sports high school. So ah. these were people who were Finnish champions, European champions, also Olympic winners. And they also had a small portion where they would take the top uh, grade um, people into the program. And so I got accepted and I went there and suddenly I'm on my first day of school and they give you the army fitness test. And I haven't done any sports in five years. Mm. And they kind of put you in your place. Like pull-ups and push-ups and <laughs> yeah. running a mile. Yeah. And, and I was dying. Yeah. And then all of my friends were, you know, into their sport. And the first question they ask is, what's your sport? And my, one of my friends who was similar to me, we had this joke. It's like, oh, we're in synchronized swimming. We <laughs> thought nobody would be in synchronized swimming until we learned that there was actually a girl who was Olympic winner in that. And we're like, okay, we can't do that. So I had to pick my sport. So that's when I then went in into fitness and dance. And I started training six, seven times a week, uh, twice a day. Wow. And For so, what kind of fitness dance? Like competitions? Um, no, it was modern dance. Uh, it was aerobics was big in, you know, the mm-hmm. 90s. Yeah. Oh, I know. <laughs> so, but it was, was all alive. going in and it was all about then being fit and the sports kind of driving and fueling me. Yeah. Um, so I think I went, went through a lot of different phases in my uh, life, but yeah. I always go all in and work really hard on yeah. whatever I'm working on. And so um, tell me about your decision to leave, I guess, um, after school and get into investment banking. Was that a platform to use as a foundation for other things? Or were you thinking, I'm going to be an investment banker forever? Yeah, so I actually started my career in Finland at Ericsson. This was a time when everybody joined Nokia, and I was go for the underdog, so I joined Ericsson. And somehow I got involved in their strategy project of looking at how to set up their first venture and innovation fund. And that was super interesting to me. And I was like, oh, uh, maybe I don't want to be in an operational role. This finance thing is really fascinating. Decided not to graduate, but go to Paris and study finance at OECP, which is the leading business school in uh, Paris. And from there, I then launched my actual career in investment banking in London. Mm. Um, 
And it was it was amazing. Uh, a lot of my best friends are still from those days. Well, they have to be. You guys are like survival <laughs> of the fittest. I've had a few people on the podcast, obviously lots of friends in investment banking, and, and the description of just the workload alone, especially for junior analysts and people mm-hmm. that are just like sleeping under their desks. Was it that type of environment in London? It was. Um, you would go through three months being in deals, and I did a lot of deals. So mm. This was the early 2000, mm-hmm. the first bubble. So did about nine big deals for about a billion and a half. So it was big deals constantly, three months nonstop, working mm-hmm. until 3 a.m. Um, but it wasn't always like that. There yeah. were also the moments when you had a little bit more balance. But I've always worked so hard. Yeah, that, you're used to it. Yeah. And so how did you transition then into um, the venture world? So then I said, okay, well, this financial engineering is really interesting. And I loved meeting with a lot of the CEOs and working with a lot of startups. And we worked with uh, Nokia as well. And I said to myself, I actually want to be more operational. I feel like I want to create value and create products. And so I was kind of naive and said, oh, I'm going to go into the investment side <laughs> to be more operational. Um, and that's how I transitioned. And again, it was a question of a well-known fund or a there was a new venture fund that was Morgan Stanley backed. And they gave me the opportunity to be an associate, but I would be able to lead my own deals. And I wow. was the first kind of doing wireless internet back in the day, as we called it, the mobile era. Yeah. Um, so I could do more than you typically would do as a junior analyst or an associate. For sure. Yeah, you got to join uh, be front, more front-facing. And so was it kind of a part of the program for you to go back and get an MBA? Or was that from them? Or you felt like, hey, I need to round out my skill set? I felt that, so we were trying to build a venture fund that was similar to Silicon Valley type investment. And that was very different back in the day in the early 2000s. Europe was not as advanced as the Valley. And I felt that I needed that experience. Several of my partners had gone to Stanford and Harvard. And then I broke up with my boyfriend mm-hmm. and I felt... <laughs> Got to get out of here. London was not big enough for the two of us. So I yes. uh, figured out uh, how far can I go and landed in Stanford. Yeah. And did you feel like that was your people or did you feel kind of like a um, a foreigner? It was really interesting. So having I've traveled the world, I lived in a lot of different countries and a lot of my friends in London were American and I worked for American companies and I came to Stanford and I would not have expected that I'm going to have a culture shock, but I had a culture shock. Mm-hmm. How would you describe it? I did not feel like I belong. It took me probably six months. And it's also very intense. Uh, and it, I think it was a combination of culture shock and then the w- amazing experience of Stanford is, which is that it's it's nurturing, but they also kind of put you back to pieces and then you kind of recreate yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is that transformative experience that is really hard, but it's life-changing. I think everybody kind of do their own, but you get paired. So I got paired by Shanma, who's the founder CEO of Zola, and they had this matching algorithm. It's like dating, uh, where they would put like-minded people mm. together, and we were paired for Schwab. And she was this incredible female entrepreneur, entrepreneur of the year in um, Australia back in the day. And she would give me a call, and she's like telling me about all these business plans she was working on her free time. And I was like, wow, this girl is amazing. So Shan was my first friend when I entered uh, Stanford. What gave you the interest in kind of pursuing more being on the other side, you know, being in the tech world as a tech leader? So I felt like I needed to do it on my own. Um, Versus be a part of a, a VC? Yes, it's very different when you're on the professional services or advisory side. It's very easy to say what to do. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> it's extremely well, hard to I'm do. And I'm sure it. it makes you have a lot more respect for the process when you're raising funds, when uh-huh. you've actually been on the other side, and it's too bad that more venture capitalists haven't been in an operating position. Absolutely. So when I was at Stanford, I focused solely on leadership and entrepreneurship. I ran the Entrepreneur Club, as they call it. We uh, put out all these programs for the entrepreneurs who were starting their businesses, and I was going to either start my own, uh, a couple of those ideas actually got started, or join a startup. Um, and that was the plan. Um, I did have an option, actually, to come to Seattle as well from mm. Microsoft, and that's kind of my connection of back course. to Seattle later on. How did you end up here? <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking down at my notes. I'm like, I, I actually don't know. I just know that I want to know a little bit more about Zazzle and eBay, cool companies. Was it like a recruiting on campus type of situation? So um, so when I was graduating uh, from Stanford, I 
had a lot of opportunities. So I was looking back whether I would go back to VC. I had um, I did my internship at Microsoft. Uh, I could have actually joined Microsoft here. I had a couple of startup ideas, and eventually I had to say no to all of the non-entrepreneurial opportunities and cut off the golden handcuffs and the money and say, I'm just going to go all in in this entrepreneurship. And it was a choice between starting a company or joining an existing company. Zazzle was interesting because it was doing something that had been un- nobody had done before. Mm-hmm. And I always want to be at the forefront of the yeah, innovation. Of so it was one of a kind marketplace. So it was a combination of learning e-commerce, but also being able to personalize each product for each customer. So mm-hmm. there was this whole I love Zazzle. And, um, and they didn't really have the business team in place. So uh, they had an incredible engineering uh, UX and product team. And it was about how do we build this growth strategy and build this business development relationships. So it was an incredible opportunity for me to then build the team and, you know, help take the company from $10 million to $50 million back in the day. And what was your role there? I was head of business development and network development. So mm-hmm. we had five different verticals from entertainment companies. We had partnerships with the Disney's and the Star Wars of the world. We created music merchandising vertical. Mm-hmm. Again, we partnered with the big players as well as um, the MySpace fans back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> Old school. You're dating yourself. Be careful. You know what's interesting is that a lot of times, because I my, my eye is so trained to look at resumes, and oftentimes you can kind of weave a story pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And yours is not... Um, it's not typical. I mean, mm-hmm. it's 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 a little bit like what is your ninja skill? Because you can kind of do a lot of different things. I guess the so I've been at the intersection of e-commerce, design, and lifestyle industries for the past decade. And yeah. For me, it's being at the forefront of what's happening. So after Zazzle, I decided to start my first company, which was called Design Story, and we were the first curated commerce. So it was about how do we get out of the eternal scroll of search-based marketplaces and build much more inspirational curated shopping. And this was my first um, era to mm-hmm. home and design. What so year to, was this around? We started in two. Hold on, I'm trying to remember the years. Two thousand and nine. How did your company differentiate itself? So we were more focused on that modern lifestyle. So going back into the Scandinavian uh, design. And the company was started, my co-founder was actually in Finland. So we were bringing a lot of European designers and design brands to the U.S. for the first time. And and that was really the angle. So it was more of uh, that modern aesthetic that mm. wasn't widely available here in the U.S. Uh, we, back in the day, it was interesting because I was talking to the VCs and the VCs would tell me that design is interesting, but it's always going to be a niche. And so we were uh, angel funded, uh, mm-hmm. raised about $2.3 million and uh, kind of, you know, slow growth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then eventually there was a company called Fab that came behind our wings. Uh, they had a social network for the gay and lesbian community, 100,000 members and two and a half million in the bank. And they decided to pivot and they decided to pivot kind of the platform of that more modern aesthetic that we have been building. And so during that summer when they were raising Series A and we were raising Series A, they were gaining all this momentum. And um, and it was really hard for us to compete against that. They mm-hmm. raised $8 million, then they raised $40 million. Oh, wow. And... Not to say that, you know, gender has an impact, but it wasn't the same raising as a female entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And is this when you, I read that you were fundraising pregnant? Exactly. So I was, so I fundraised when I was pregnant. And at that point of time, it was, there's actually a, <laughs> a lot of stories I have on this, but it was a different era. We didn't have the female founders community. The women VCs couldn't support uh, your deal because there was a lot of times too much risk. Oh, yeah. So when I was fundraising, I had all this momentum. People loved the idea and what we were going to work towards. And as soon as I would show up to the meetings and they could see my belly, the was conversation like over. was over. And it was interesting because I had to make a conscious decision to put fundraising on hold. And then I had my first son, uh, Samuel, um, and three weeks later, it, it wasn't visible anymore. And I was fundraising with a three-week-old baby in my arms. And? And then I was able to raise. Uh, it was angel fun- funding, but 
Um, but again, it changed night and day because up until then, the conversation was, well, you don't know how you're going to change once, once you have your baby. And I was like, I know me. I'm always going to work hard. I need to have a passion. And simultaneously, my husband, who's also in startups and technology, was having conversations for his startup idea. And he would tell that he's expecting his first and he would get a tap on the shoulder. And it was just night and day difference, difference mm-hmm. on how, uh, what the reaction was from the VC community back in the day. I talked to a lot of female entrepreneurs who are fundraising, and it's difficult. And I, I'm grateful that you are bringing this up, because if you don't, then who will, right? How many women have been in your position? I know. So I feel nowadays that I have this duty to promote female entrepreneurship and talk about this openly. And I keep on pushing. And that's one of the reasons with Spruce Up, we have, you know, 70% of our employees are women. My half of my board is women. I put pressure on my lawyers to make sure that there's a female partner coming to our board meetings because we need to change from the top where the money flows. 100%. The whole uh, diversity thing, because that's what's going to change the conversation. And at the end of the day, it is money that talks. Yeah. And if you're underfunded, even if you have a great idea, if somebody has 40 million versus, you know, 3 million. They're at a disadvantage for sure. It's harder. Where they're already at a disadvantage. So, yeah, no, I completely agree. And so what was your experience like once you had Samuel and then you're going into fundraising? Um, that was a point in time that I met one of my uh, amazing mentors. Uh, her name is Hillary Billings, and she was back in the day with Red Envelope, took it public. She had four boys uh, while she was taking company, company public. And I walked into these meetings three weeks after Samuel was born to meet, meet with her, and Samuel was there sleeping outside the cafe. And I think somehow we just hit it off because she loves Scandinavian design, and she became this mentor and she agreed to join our board. And she's even today, you know, today she's the independent board uh, director for Spruce Up. But having that support and that mentorship from somebody who had gone through it, mm. she had raised from Sequoia while, when she was pregnant, but that was very rare <laughs> in the days. Yes. But she would help me navigate all of these questions and issues as an entrepreneur while yeah. you're raising. And so family. what ultimately happened with Design Story? So... Uh, eventually, we we couldn't make it, um, and there were a couple of reasons. One is that we were not able to get the same momentum that Fab. So Fab became the golden child. Our investor base was between Europe and here. There was a day when we would have raised, and European markets crashed. And as the European investors went away, then the Silicon Valley investors kind of followed. Yeah. And I could have raised a small amount of money, but this was my the VC in me looking at it and trying to look at it objectively, which is really hard. And I realized that this is going to be bad money after good money. Mm. And that it's really hard for me to raise a small amount of funding and try to compete against the 40 million and then became 300 million that Fab raised. And then another thing happened. So during that week when we made the really hard decision of saying, okay, we need to change strategy or either focus on European markets or do something different um, or discontinue the operations, um, I went to the doctor and I found out that I was pregnant with identical triplets. <laughs> Holy shit. And identical triplets. Identical triplets. And one of them was not going to make it. And this was my second surprise pregnancy. <laughs> not planned. And it was in that moment, I never quiet. And I literally sat down there and I didn't have a word. And I called my husband. I was like, Shane, you got to sit down. (laughs) Here's the situation. And I was told by the doctor immediately, like, you're going to be on bed rest. You have three weeks to prepare and you're going to be on bed. I'm expecting you not to work or anything. And for me, who's always worked so hard, being told that I cannot do any sports, I can walk, I need to be constrained to my bed for the rest of the pregnancy... It was such a shock. Anyway, so that was a moment when I felt that there's a universe talking to me, and I just put my hands up in the air. This isn't meant to be. <laughs> and there is something else in the plans. And you got two beautiful boys. And I got out of two beautiful pregnancy. boys, and we made it to the safe zone. Did you have to stay on bed pregnancy. rest? I was on bed rest for four months. Um, wow. And uh, Jamie and Connor were born. And. Um, 
Yeah. And I took uh, four or five months and I knew that I had to get back. And so this was the segue into eBay. So mm, okay, eBay um, had a 40 million initiative with Kate Spade and Coach, and they were trying to figure out how to better compete against the One King's Lanes and the Guilds and the Fabs of the world. And so there was a small product team and they invited me to come and lead that effort. And I thought it would be a corporate job that I could handle with three under three easily. And initially it was really fun. We we had, you know, a small product team and a couple of engineers. And then that grew really fast into global organization of 70 engineers. And suddenly I had a team not in just San Jose with two hour commutes from my Oakland house. Oh my gosh. Then I had a team in you London. You were living in Oakland and working in San Jose? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I wish I had known you back then. I would have run interference on that one. Yeah. Are you crazy? I, I, Come well, on. We were going to move, and then my husband changed plans. For his career, we couldn't move anyway. So I took the commute. I had three under three. I had the San Jose team. Then we added London team, and then there was a Zurich team. Eventually, there was a team in India. So I would have my schedule for eight hours, uh, triple booked for every half an hour slot. I would start my days with Europe and then go through all of these different time zones. And we took that business to a billion and a half in 18 months. And this was purely because of eBay's uh, merchandising selection was already there. And we eventually built much bigger business than one Kings Lane and Gilt <laughs> and Fab combined. So that was kind of like taking everything that I learned from Design Story and instead of you know, feel, feeling bad about myself, taking all those learnings yeah, and like, then taking wow. that to scale. But it was hard because I had three under three at home. And how did you deal with that? I'm going to pivot for a second to yeah. just talk about that part. I'm, this is just mom to mom. Like, what the what? <laughs> how and did we, you do And that? we had zero family living nearby us. Well, yeah. So no help. Because so, your husband's from Hawaii, you're from Finland. So what did you do? So we had au pairs and nannies, but mm. it was interesting because... No nanny would last for more than two hours. And we went through a segue of nannies. And first nanny that told me that she was in a car accident, I felt horrible. And by the time the third nanny told me that she's in a car accident, I'm like, you're not in a car accident. This is just such a hard job. Were your kids just um, is just because of their age? Or are they particularly rambunctious? Well, they're sweet. They're rambunctious boys now, but uh, it's just three under three. Oh, it's yeah. like you're just feeding and changing diapers. Yeah. When I was breastfeeding for the first four months, that was 10 hours of my day. Yes. And twins were never on schedule. So we didn't sleep. <laughs> and it was like a work camp for anybody who would show up to our house. And my husband and I, we don't remember anything. It's like oh, a yeah. fog. <laughs> I'm sure. You're like, I think we lived through that. Was that you? Yeah. Oh, well, at least you survived it. Your marriage did. A lot of marriages, that's like, can be very derailing. I think uh, it's very easy not to make it through. So, yeah. yes, it do, you have any tips? do you have any <laughs> tips? Even, even though you were blacked out during that period, do you have any tips for us for young, uh, expecting moms? I think it's actually a blessing in disguise. My husband and I talk about it a lot. We did not have an opportunity to walk out because if we walked out, everything would have fall, fallen apart. It was yeah. like a house of cards. Yeah. So in some ways, you have to learn to work your way through and become better partners, mm -hmm. no matter how hard it is. Yeah. So there's no carving out special one-on-one -on -one time in those days. <laughs> no, no date nights. Yeah. And how old are the kids right now? The boys are now seven, seven, and nine. Yeah, I mean, you're still so in it. That's a lot. And a startup. It is so much easier. So, Well, I mean, I'm a mom, too, so I get it. But um, but what, what happened with eBay? Sounds like the dream situation in certain ways. So eBay was great, but what I realized is that I'm not a big company yeah, You're like, person. I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> Hello, I'm an entrepreneur. And what I love is I love being in front of partners and customers and being very close to the product. And as you build a larger organization in large corporates... Um, it's more about the strategy. And by the time I was doing the strategy round and how do we build half a billion dollar growth next year, I was like, I'm no longer talking to the customers directly mm -hmm. and having a huge impact on the product and the team. Right. And that's what I love doing. And especially when you're commuting from Oakland, I mean, it's like, you better be pretty inspired to go do that. Yeah. And then we had this opportunity where uh, both my husband and I had an opportunity to move to New York. Uh, and his family had just moved there, and this enabled us to be close to one side of the family. And mm. it was also closer to my family. My uh, dad was actually uh, getting pretty sick uh, from his Parkinson's um, at that point of time. 
And I was approached by a serial angel investor and entrepreneur in New York uh, with this idea of building house for offices. Mm. And the crazy entrepreneur in me was like, well, I was sure thought I would, you know, want to live in New York, but I never thought I would m- live in New York with three boys Were and, you in a, the city? and a puppy. And we moved to Brooklyn. Oh, to Brooklyn. And eventually we had to move out of Brooklyn into the suburbs because of the schools. So then yes. we were in Westchester, but that's yeah. a different story. And so um, you were like, I'm just going to do this. This guy or woman, angel investor, gave you money. Mm -hmm. So he was one of the founders from Guild um, and and others. And um, it was a very simple idea. I did not know much about commercial uh, real estate and interior design, but I was early on in house and felt that there was an opportunity there. I loved house. I loved house too. And I was there early on. That's addicting though. (laughs) It's like there, there went my day. I've been on house all day. Yeah. And so moved to New York, uh, built that company, you know, raised about $10 million. Uh, we partnered with everybody and anybody in the industry from the Nalls to Herman Miller's, uh, still cases of the world and uh, built a great community. And um, eventually, um, there's no data in this industry, figured that while we built amazing team and amazing product, uh, there are not that many interior designers in the world to build a SaaS or media type of business. Mm-hmm. And so that was the big realizations and talking about the failures and <laughs> the pivots. I think it's good to be talking about the failures um, and the pivots. Where, you know, that was the big aha moment. And uh, eventually we realized we needed to pivot. And there were differences in opinion of where we're going to pivot. Who, you you and the angel investor? Or you and your, did you have a co-founder? I had a co-founder CTO, but we were kind of a, um, I would say, hired team. Mm. So the model is almost like this startup studio oh, where yeah. it's somebody's idea, they are the chairman, and you come and run the company. You're, you're the hired gun. Yeah. You're the hired gun, which I learned the hard way that it's actually a little hard to do because you're implementing somebody else's vision, and it's not yours. And when things don't go exactly um, as you planned or hoped for, it's harder to make some of those hard decisions fast enough and in line with who you are. Mm-hmm. And so that was a point in time that we parted ways. Uh, they decided to go into a very B2B uh, type of business model, and mm-hmm. that's not my passion. My passion is in consumers. Yeah. And I took, I guess, a year, half a year off where I did a lot of hot yoga. <laughs> did you? I love hot yoga. I have a good gym for you. Yeah. Did you... Um, did you get to keep a piece of the company or you just walked away from all of it? No, I had equity and they just exited, uh, which is great. Uh, yeah. Fantastic for the team. So um, eventually I took some time off. I was consulting. It was interesting because both my husband and I were working from home. He was head of product for Silicon Valley. And you made uh, it through company. that also. We went, yeah. And I was consulting and it was really, I would say, easy money in some ways. And I was working have time, but I wasn't inspired. I wasn't learning. And I realized like it was really good for me to do that much hot yoga. Yeah. But I was bored out You're of like, my I'm mind. In, I'm in the best shape of my life, but I'm so bored. And yeah. so then we, uh, my husband and I uh, looked uh, at each other. It's like, okay, family's here now in New York, but where do we want to live? And are we East Coast people? And we, the boys were five years old uh, back in the day. And we said, hey, we have this 10-year period of time when we get to live with our boys when they still want to hang out with us. We're into outdoors. We love hiking and biking and sailing and all those things. And we're like, we're not really East Coast folks. And he was working for a startup as a head of product uh, to Silicon Valley. And that's really hard to do remotely. And these two career moves are really hard. And said, okay, we got to do this uh, change and we got to do it together now. Mm -hmm. And it's a perfect age to do it too, before the kids are too entrenched. And so we said, we're going to come back to the better coast. And suddenly Microsoft that he had worked uh, for before came with this offer that they created this custom role for him. And I said, okay, I'm going to follow you this time around. And I'm sure I'm going to find something in Seattle. And it has amazing talent for engineering and AI and commerce. And I just want to work with really smart people. And that's how we landed here. And so I started talking to people, and I was talking to Tim Porter from Madrona, who had back in the day tried to hire me three times around to Microsoft's M&A group. And he introduced me to 
Mike and the team at Madrona Venture Labs and it turned out that they were looking into opportunities within home and design and they had a completely different idea initially. And I said, great, I'm going to come in and I'm going to work in the heart of the eco startup ecosystem here in Seattle and help them validate this concept with the background that I have. Mm-hmm. But I had zero plan like, hey, I need to do my next company. You weren't thinking this is going to be my next big venture. I just wanted to work with smart people mm-hmm. and vet different ideas. But mm-hmm. it wasn't like, hey, I have this fire to do my next thing. Mm-hmm. As a venture capitalist, um, how did you like the Madrona Venture Labs model as an entrepreneur? Because you, you've got so much intel. Yeah, and I feel like I've done three different models. I've done it on my own. The second was like, you're the hired gun, and this was a startup studio. But what I realized, I've done startups in three different cities, and I was new to the city. So I did not have the network to hire the right people. Mm-hmm. And, and the you, labs can be very helpful with that. Yeah, so I could validate and go through design thinking type of process to validate the right idea and work with a team. They gave me UX designer, engineering resource. We could uh, build prototypes. I had an intern to do strategy with Mm -hmm. and uh, to make sure that if I was going to join an idea that I actually had vetted it and it was going to be mine. That was really important for me. And uh, working with uh, the studio model um, has its equity downside, but the upside was that I would get access to the network of all of this talent. Oh, for sure. Work with really smart people. We would bounce, you know, ideas off each other to get into a better outcome. And once um, they actually did ask me what my big idea for this space was um, and then got excited about it, once we actually went and uh, did the initial fundraising, the pre-seed, mm-hmm. it was a combination of my relationships in the Valley and New York and there. So it was probably like 50-50. So it was yeah. a true partnership. Yeah. Uh, and what is Spruce Up? So Spruce Up is a curated, personalized shopping experience uh, to help you create a home that feels you in the midst of busy, professional, and personal lives. I'm sure I'm like literally your target audience. I hope you are. I've got, um, I've paid interior designers and we've, we love, um, I, I love the interior design space. But I, where I was thinking it could be super helpful is like right now I'm looking for a... Um, We've got a little banquette, little area in our kitchen, and our table is not the right scale and the mm-hmm. right look. It's actually a Scandinavian type of table, but I want more of a farmhouse table. Okay, great. <laughs> like, yeah. Not that this matters to our podcast listeners, but is that something that Spruce Up could help with? Because what I feel that I'm good at, and maybe this makes me a target audience, is that I know it when I see it, uh-huh. but I'm not good at scale. Yeah. I'm terrible at that. Yeah. No, absolutely. So we can help uh, Spruce Up any space in your home. Um, the way that it works is we leverage designer augmented AI and we are building your design genome. So when you take our quiz, it's powered by our data science and we take about a thousand different um, data points, high signal data points to analyze your preferences in style, colors, materials, mm-hmm. um, patterns, etc. And how do you, in which portion do you mix them? Mm-hmm. We do the same thing with our a database of about 25,000 products from the well-known partners like Cartel to Lolo Rocks to the Unique and Hard to Find. And then we match the right products for each room in your house. Mm-hmm. And if you need the help of our interior designers, uh, you can ask about the right scale, the sizing for the product. You mm-hmm. can ask them to tie a perfect look together. All of that is free. Mm-hmm. And that's where the hyper-personalization comes to play. So they will recommend just the perfect set for that room. And can you do an entire house or just a sprucing up? Um, we don't compete with the traditional interior design. We think it's a very different model. It's best to do in person with a high-end interior mm-hmm. design. If you have the money and the time, get a, an amazing interior designer to do your full house. What we're really good at is get you out of that eternal scroll between house and Amazon and all oh, these different it's micro It's so addicting brands. and so frustrating. Because <laughs> you're also like, if I just know that I want a shabby, chic, deep, comfortable linen couch... Um, where do I even start? And if I go on just 10 different websites, I can't price compare and fabric compare and durability compare. And it yeah. drives me crazy. So we help you narrow down to just the right choices based on your preferences and materials and durability. If you have mm-hmm. kids and pets that they are, you know, I like pet that friendly. part. I like that you have that because <laughs> I did do the little um, quiz. I've been on, on your site for a while and I liked that part. I also liked that I could specify my sensitivity to price point. Mm-hmm. You know, am I just like 
agnostic, like whatever, send the best of the best? Or yeah. am I looking for um, the best price? Exactly. And we find it's mainly the women. Uh, women do 80% of the home uh, furnishing and decorative don't decisions they do, Don't they home. do 80% of <laughs> online shopping across the board? In general, too, yeah. yeah. And uh, so what we find is that most customers are mixing and matching different styles and price points, mm -hmm. high and low. I came back with like 30% this, 35% that, and I, it was perfectly describing my style. Mm -hmm. So what's the business model? How do you make money? So we are a full-on e-commerce company. Uh, we partner with about 70 brands uh, from the well-known to the unique and hard to find. And as any e-commerce player, we make our margin from that wholesale to retail. But mm -hmm. as a consumer, we have best price guarantees. So it is the typical, there's no markup to the retail pricing that you would see anywhere else. Right, which sometimes can be a dysfunctional relationship with an interior designer, I find. Mm -hmm. I don't like that model for yeah. me. It doesn't make sense it if you buy things make that sense. are available elsewhere. Yeah, no, it doesn't make sense. So it sounds like you've raised 4.6 million in funding and how long has the business been around? So we launched our beta site about a year ago and we built the foundation uh, for that curation. Mm -hmm. um, so we've been building our partnerships uh, of you know 70 partners. We've added that taxonomy that we call the genome, the design genome to our database, testing the high signal data. And right now we are building our next generation product that we'll be launching very shortly. And what is that product? So um, the new product is fully AI-powered customer experience. So when you take our quiz, uh, we directly match you with the right products, and we are providing curated, personalized boutiques for each room in your house, home. And this is something that nobody's doing. Uh, it is not just generic merchandise content. It is actually perfectly matched to you and your needs. And how are you going about customer acquisition? We are going after the busy professional women. Mm -hmm. uh, How do you access them? And they tend to be on social media, so Instagram, Pinterest. We've done a lot of uh, events. We did an event with Amy here at Riveter. Um, we are looking at partnerships with people like Armoire locally. Mm -hmm. uh, we've both of the working. both Amy and um, Ambika <laughs> have been on my they're amazing podcast. Women. We love them. And um, we also work with influencers. So it's a really a mix uh, of customer acquisition channels. Mm -hmm. And then we re-engage. Um, if you are subscribing to our emails, we talk about the trends. I uh, love this it. beautiful color going right now. Yeah. And, and the idea is that we can personalize all of, all of that to you. So when you get our marketing newsletters, it's not just generic things that we recommend for the holidays, but we will have a personalized holiday boutique just for you. I love it. I really love this business. Like, I'm kind of, I love recruiting, but how cool, to, I mean, this is one of my passions, and so I get really excited talking about it. It's mine too. <laughs> it's so much fun. And so what? what's your style at your house? I'm very eclectic. Um, yeah, me too. So when you get married, you have to combine your styles, and I think that's one of the hardest things. And we hear that from a lot of our customers, that we help the couples to get into a decision much faster mm -hmm. and not go through the agonizing process of decision making. Are they making. taking the quiz together, <laughs> and are you creating a mood board for both the husband and wife? Yes. So we don't have a combined profile, but a lot of people take it together. And when the interior designer especially gets involved and makes recommendation, that helps um, uh, get into the decision much, much faster. Mm -hmm. But um, you asked about my style. So my style is very Scandinavian, but I also want it to be cozy. I'm travel inspired. So I've collected a lot of wooden statues and other things throughout my travels. I visited about 40 countries by now. And then I mix in things that I know that will make my husband happy. So mixing in a little bit of that uh, contemporary American style uh, that's comfortable. And so it's really a combination of our story. Does he have a recliner chair to watch his football games? I don't know. <laughs> Such <those>. a cliche. <laughs> I know. You're like, um, you could put that in the garage. Yes. He has his sofa in the garage yeah, exactly. that I would not let into the house. <laughs> I'm so happy that I'm not alone. Thank you. It makes me feel better. We don't have it in the garage, but I, we're speaking the same language, I think. Yes. So tell me about your recruiting efforts and your... Um, kind of deliberate approach to building a culture because this is now your baby. Mm -hmm. So I've been very liberate about building a diverse team. Uh, over 70% of our employees are women. Uh, we also have diversity in terms of race and sexual orientation. 
And it goes all the way uh, to the composition, as I mentioned, of our board. Uh, so <clears throat> the board is uh, 50% women with Hillary and I and 50% men. And I've asked our uh, lawyers to also split between the female partner and male partner because for me it's really important that there is this diversity of thought at every level and it comes from the top. It comes, it flows from the LPs to the VCs and the investors and then it flows into the startups. And we've been trying to change this technology industry from bottoms up and that helps, but it's really the money and the capital that speaks. And yes. so I've, I'm putting as much pressure as I can, mm -hmm. having been in this industry for 20 years to try to change it so that it flows all yes. the way through. Well, thank you. I really think it's important. And I do see that people are actually doing it now. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've been hearing about it for a long time, but it seems like people are actually taking action lately yeah. more than more than ever. So I also know that for a lot of successful women, they talk about um, one of the most important decisions is who you marry. Absolutely. Um, and so you met your husband where? It's a funny story. So I was at the Halloween party of Stanford GSB in downtown San Francisco, and it was a private party. And I had just lost all of my best friends among the 500 best friends that you have at GSB. And I was coming from the roof terrace uh, to go down, and there was the elevator, and it was closing, and it was like this sliding door. Yeah. I don't know if you've seen that Of movie. course, one of my favorites. <laughs> and last minute, somebody puts their foot in between the door. And I walk into the elevator, and we, of course, we're in Halloween costumes, and he's wearing a wig. So he's extra hot. <laughs> and he's bald, by the way. Yeah. Was, and... it, was it a long, a long hair wig? <laughs> and I was into this curly hair look, and that's kind of the wig right. that he What was. was he? He was a pirate. Oh, okay. And, um, and I had a nothing... A curly-haired pirate? Uh, yeah. And oh. I had nothing better to do than to start talking to this random guy. Yeah. And I think I was also in this point uh, in time in my life where it had been a dry season. <laughs> and I had also done a lot of meditation and life visioning at Stanford where I was really ready to meet the right person. And here I am in this Halloween party. Hope, hoping he's curly haired. And meet this random guy. And, um, and he was one of those guys and he said, I'm going to call you. And, and he did. He did. And the rest is history. Nice. And here you are in Seattle, three kids later. How do you balance it all? I really, I really am curious. And I've also read that you were asked the question of who you'd like to have dinner with or, or invite to a dinner party. You said Dalai Lama. So I was curious about that answer. Is that your meditative side? I think that's... Uh, so I got to meet Dalai Lama at Stanford, but oh. he was in a large auditorium. And I do think I've read a lot about Buddhism and different religions, and mm -hmm. I'm into different cultures. I'm, you know, not a connoisseur in any way of How form. were you raised? I was raised um, agnostic. It was interesting. My parents... Um, were atheists, and I actually had friends who went to church, and I forced my mom to go to church with me. Because you and... felt left out? <laughs> like, why don't we get to go to church? And I don't know. I had actually this drawing. It's never been to one religion, but that there is some uh, bigger power Higher in this world. Power, yeah. Higher power, Anyway, so I forced my mom to be there uh, for an hour, and after an hour she said, you can come to church, but I will never join you. So for a bit, I actually went by myself. Anyway, segue. But Dalai Lama, um, I'm big into... I. So my way of getting energy and balance is through yoga and meditation. And hot yoga is actually the thing that does it for me. And there is something about that spiritual and physical connection that appeals to me and gives me that balance. And I think people like Dalai Lama, they have a way of approaching things that world and life throws at us that gives you calm and peace. Yeah, I completely agree. And it, there is so much craziness going on in our lives. And sometimes people say, you come across so calm. And I'm like, I'm totally not calm because I'm that go-getter. Yeah. But I had to learn to balance all of that noise. Yeah. You just knew life. how to find your tools, right? Mm -hmm. And Well, I love that saying that people say, um, describe somebody as like a duck. Like they're smooth on top mm -hmm. of the water, but underneath their feet are like going, going, going. That's Stanford, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so... You unwind through um, your yoga, and how do you find, like, tools or balance, not just mentally, but, like, literally tools to balance being a mom and having three kids? And I do ask this of men also. This is not a specific to you as mm -hmm. a woman question. I'm just curious Sure. How you do I think it. it's an important question also for my husband. We're 50-50 household, very Scandinavian style. Um, 
I try to be present. So when I'm in the office, I'm present to my team and I'm trying to focus on every meeting being 100% there. And then on the weekends and on the evenings when I'm with my kids, we go and do a lot of hiking or I'm at their soccer games and I want to be there. Mm -hmm. But I do uh, put boundaries uh, for work. As an entrepreneur, you are thinking about it 24-7. You easily do burn out. And so a lot of it is about how do you manage your physiological and uh, psychological balance. And so you have to put some boundaries to be able to be effective Mm -hmm. when you come back to the office. So Mm -hmm. on the weekends, I try not to work. I'm thinking but not necessarily doing operational things unless I have to, unless there is a board meeting or investor meetings mm-hmm. coming up and so forth. Yeah. When you're thinking about building your team, because that's probably on your mind a lot, most entrepreneurs I talk to, lucky me, say that building the talent out is probably the thing they lose the sleep over the most. Mm-hmm. Um when you think of, I know you talked about diversity, but when you think of a person who's the right fit for Spruce Up, is there a common thread as far as attitude or personality or style so all of uh, all of us at spruce up have this passion for design mm-hmm. and whether it's interior design whether it's designing a beautiful user experience or designing amazing code or our ai architecture it's all about design and the second part of it is uh being a maker i think in the startups that i learned this actually also the mm-hmm. hard way is that sometimes some of the big company things of running processes don't translate into early stage startups and so it's all about communication and trust and as you want to move fast you also have to have this maker mentality what does that mean a maker mentality it's that we are all building Mm. Like I am doing... we're not passively inheriting things. We're saying, can we make it better? We are not creating work for others. We are creating work for everybody, and we're all doing the work. Yeah, got it. I like that. And what would you say is your ultimate, um, you know, we talked a little bit about what fueled you when you were younger. What's fueling you today? What's fueling me today is to build a life with meaning. And for me, the meaning comes from all aspects of my life, whether that's work. So I'm always pushing the boundaries of innovation. I'm learning. I'm curious. I'm doing something that hasn't been done before. Right Mm -hmm. now we're doing AI-enabled e-commerce. Nobody's doing what we're doing. I love it. Whether it is uh, my family and my friends, I put so much more weight into having meaningful conversations and meaningful relationships. Mm -hmm. And I have very deep relationships with a lot of my friends have been my best friends for 25 years. I just don't get to see them as often as I would like. All the way to my kids and instilling that same sense of curiosity and hard work and going for it. And I get a lot of energy uh, from my boys, watching them getting passionate about soccer, watching them uh, picking up a recipe and cooking something for us as a surprise, learning how to code. Um, they wow. are just so. They sound amazing. They are amazing. And they're like, it's not like we're pushing that. Mm-hmm. That's the curiosity that's within them. And it's about fueling that curiosity. And then that fuels me. I love it. I have to say, um, I have a little bit of a crush on you. <laughs> Not in that way, but in like, a, I could talk to you for a really long time. You have so many interesting things. And also, um, I feel like you're, the more I talk to you, the more I want to talk more. Well, likewise. Yeah, super fun. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. So if anybody wants to get onto your website, what is it? Go to www.getspruceup.com. The Get Spruce Up part. Okay, cool. I just wanted to make sure you said that because if you Google Spruce Up, it's harder to find it. GetSpruceUp.com. <laughs> Thanks, Mia. Thank you, Shana. Thank you for listening to the What Fuels You podcast. Be sure to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and follow us on social media to keep up with the latest news and episodes. You can also contact us at podcast at fueltalent.com. To provide feedback, ask questions, and share topics or guests you would like us to cover in the future. We hope you feel inspired by our guests and that we have helped fuel your day. Join us next time for another episode of What Fuels You.